Testament reading and focus passages, Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. Remember the height from which you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. In about the year 95, John was on the island of Patmos on account of the gospel, meaning that he, for some reason, for perhaps preaching the word of God, was now imprisoned and in some kind of a labor camp or exiled to this island, which you can still visit today. And on that island, John was given visions, an apocalyptic vision of Christ's victory over evil. And that vision was to be conveyed to churches in Asia Minor, seven of which we will focus on in the next few weeks. Were there more than seven churches in Asia Minor? Absolutely. But these were the churches that John wrote to. In fact, there may have even been, there probably was some significance to the fact that John chose seven. And if you want to learn more about the numbers and symbolism in Revelation, come back on Wednesday. But John wrote first to the church at Ephesus. Each of the churches were dealing with something, some kind of persecution or temptation to stray from their beliefs or to march lockstep with the demands of the emperor Domitian or the Roman Empire. And John felt led and was given this vision to pass on to the churches about how to remain strong and steadfast in the midst of such persecution and hardship. And so as we begin this passage, every letter has a greeting and an identification of Christ that is unique from the other. And like much of Revelation, it will reference some vivid imagery of Jewish culture or Old Testament images, in this case, a golden lampstand. In the book of Exodus, God commands a golden lampstand to be placed in the tabernacle. That lampstand, of course, made of gold, would look like a tree with blossoms, specifically the blossoms of an almond tree. Almonds were a symbol of hope and fruitfulness in the Mediterranean region. In fact, sometimes we believe that when we hear the term milk and honey, it may not be referring to cow's milk. It might actually be referring to almond milk, which may some, some of you may be surprised by. If you've ever had almond milk from the Mediterranean, 
you will learn to love almond milk. It's not the same that you buy in the grocery store. It's really good. It's really sweet. And so this lampstand was perhaps intended to be a symbol of hope and fruitfulness as well as giving light to the tabernacle. And so in this letter to Ephesus, the vision emphasizes the role of the church as being a beacon of light and hope to the world, a light that brings hope but also bears fruit like the almond tree, sweet, good, nourishing fruit. It is implied that each of these seven churches serves as this beautiful lampstand. We don't emphasize lamps much anymore in the church, but throughout December, we had our own little lampstand that sat right about here, didn't we? It was a lampstand with five candles on it, and each Sunday we lit a new candle. It was to be a symbol of the anticipation of Christ coming to the world to bring light to the darkness. And so, yes, at least once a year, we practice lighting a lamp, so to say. Of course, this was in the form of an Advent wreath. And on December 25th, the whole wreath is lit. The Christ candle is lit, which remains lit throughout the year. On December 24th, we read from Isaiah 9 that the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. The churches of Asia Minor would need to, to hear this passage beyond just Christmas. This was something they needed to hear and live out every day, that there was in fact light in the darkness because they were in a dark time. They were living in a time of persecution, a time where they were tempted to follow other cultish religions, and we read of that, of course, in this passage. We put our lights away yesterday. I'm guessing many of you, you can technically have them up today because it is the 12th day of Christmas. So if you've still got your lights up, that's okay. It's not a bad thing. But even when you put your lights away or don't light them anymore throughout the year, it is up to us to keep that light burning, such as the church at Ephesus. We too are Christ's lampstand to the world, conveying a sense of hope and light in a world of darkness. And as much as I wish that we could use something like a light switch or to plug our lights in as a church, or I wish we could use a simple grill lighter to keep that light burning, we read in Revelation that keeping our lamps burning is more like a toil. It's more like perseverance. It's a challenge. Christ says to the church, I know your works. I know your toil. I know your patience and your endurance. Work, toil, and patient endurance. Christ recognizes this quality in the church at Ephesus and points that out for them. I don't think any Christian in this room would deny the challenge of discipleship. No one in this room would say Christianity was easy to live out. But we don't often utilize the term toil when we talk about the Christian faith. 
When we share our faith with others, we don't emphasize the challenge or the toil or the grueling pain that sometimes comes with practicing the Christian faith because that's what toil means. Toil is not a part of our vocabulary much anymore to begin with. If you want to know what toil is, toil is like assembling a little girl's toys on December 24th. That is toil. Or arriving home from a seven-day trip from seeing family and seeing this combined pile of dirty clothes and knowing what you're going to have to go through to get it clean. That's toil. Or carrying, let's just fast forward a few months, carrying 40 bags of mulch from your truck to the house on an 80-degree day to put it out in hot weather, that's toil. Tilling a garden without a machine, that's toil. Completing a triathlon, I will likely never know what that feels like, but I am guessing that is toil. The point is is that we can imply from this passage that the Christian life is not easy. In fact, it can be a real struggle. And yet that's the kind of Christian life that Christ commends to the church at Ephesus. I confess as a pastor it makes me feel insufficient at times because I don't often lead with that. In a few weeks, we will have a baptism of Anna Hessen, and when Karen and I were in our office talking with her about the Christian faith, I didn't say, now listen up, Anna. The rest of your life is going to be a grueling toil. Are you sure you want to do this? Yeah, we talked about the challenges of the Christian life. It's a challenging life, but we did not paint it in terms of toil or grueling pain, and yet that is what Christ praises in the church at Ephesus. They had been waiting through the toil of persecution and creeping heresy and imperial influence for decades, and in order to keep that sound doctrine and Christian belief and faithful lifestyle, they had to live out their faith in a grueling, patient way. And so in 2020, maybe it is time for us, the church, to reclaim our toil. What do you say? Like Ephesus, we can find our meaning and purpose in the toil and labor of doing the work of the church. We don't want that. We want church to be easy. We want our worship to be easy. We want our discipleship and our Christian education to be easy and routine. We want our relationships to be easy. We want to bond with people we already know and have known for decades. That's the easy part. We want to send our dollars off so that others can do mission work. We don't necessarily want to do it on our own. Where's our toil going to come from in 2020? Where can we work a little harder? Where can we feel the pain of doing Christ's work? Because we know that's what he's calling us to do. But not everything is patient, or not everything is perfect at Ephesus. Christ says, you have abandoned or forsaken your first love or the love you had at first. Now, I don't know if you'd call this holy irony or not, 
But the church at Ephesus was so devoted to right belief, sound doctrine, not straying off that narrow path of belief, that they seemed to forget something pretty important along the way, that being an unyielding love for God and each other and neighbor. The beauty of Revelation is that nearly every verse can send you thumbing back through your Bible to see where you've heard something like that before. Of course, when you hear a passage about love, you could go many places. I first went to 1 Corinthians 13 when I read this passage. I wonder if John had this in mind. In 1 Corinthians 13, if I speak in the tongues of men or of angels but have not love, I am only a resounding gong or clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, seemingly as they did at Ephesus, and if I have faith that can move mountains but do not have love, I'm nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast but do not have love, I gain nothing. And so Paul says in this letter, that the church and its members could do all the right things on the outside. They could do all the right things by action. They could prophesy, speak in tongues, have all the knowledge, show great faith. They could give to the poor and still not have love. What an eye-opening truth for us, isn't it, First Baptist Church? We could do all those things and still not have love. From Paul and also from Christ's words to the church at Ephesus, we have been given a caution today, I believe. I believe this passage is a warning in many ways. We could be the most doctrinally sound church in town and not love God and neighbor, and we are therefore what? We are nothing. We could be people of great faith and not have love for God or our neighbor, and we would therefore be nothing. We could house a shelter in our fellowship hall, but not love the homeless. Did you ever think about that? We are nothing if we don't have love. We could lease land to a daycare and not love children. We are nothing if we don't have love. For all this talk of identity and mission and vision and growth and our resourcing, our stewardship and our future, we had best not be like Ephesus and abandon love as our transcendent reality and our number one in this place. But every week we will read of a promise or a hope. Every letter has something hopeful to say towards the end of the passage. This week, the church is told that if they conquer, they will eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. And so at that point, you would thumb all the way back towards the beginning of your Bible. When you hear tree of life or paradise of God, Christ expects you, expects the hearer of these letters to be reminded Of the paradise we read of in the book of Genesis, a place where humankind was expelled for disobedience. And here we have been given the ultimate chance and opportunity to return to paradise and enter that paradise of God and eat. 
should we remain faithful? At this point in the church's life, the church had been around for a while, but they were struggling. They were tempted by the fact that if I have to give my life, I'm not sure I want to do this. Revelation is often called the book of martyrs. It's about people who were assuming and expecting to go to their death on account of the gospel. And so we have hope from Christ speaking to those who might just go to their death if they follow the gospel to their logical end, that not only would they be in paradise, they would be in paradise because they conquered. Revelation is from beginning to end about Christ's victory over the powers of evil in this world and the need for God's people to remain faithful even to the point of death. Victory in Revelation is not about you or I taking the sword and overpowering others or oppressing others. It is about remaining true to the call of Christ, even if that means giving your life and exhibiting a love for God and neighbor that surpasses all logic and all understanding. The assumption is that our life will be claimed. If we follow Jesus all the way, our life will be claimed. Now, we may not be facing the same threat as the church in Ephesus. Our physical bodies may not be in jeopardy for worshiping Christ in the United States of America in the year 2020. It remains the same that our lives will be claimed, doesn't it? The lives we wish to pursue, lives of accumulating stuff, of status, of power, our lives will be claimed if we follow Christ. If you stay true to Christ's teaching, it means you loved with the love of Christ. You did not succumb to the principalities and powers of this world. Your life was taken, and yet you have entered the paradise of God. What a wonderful hope for God's people as they struggle through this toil of living the Christian life. It is worth it, is what Christ is telling us. I ask you today, are you prepared to make the same commitment as the church at Ephesus? To lay down your life for the sake of the gospel? He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let us pray.